What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan, joined with Jared, and we are talking about everyone's favorite, well, I mean, everyone's most well-known, I don't know, fast-talking <laughs> apologist, Frank Turek. The and, most gish-galloping gish-galloper there is. Right. Uh, Frank Turek has teamed up with Alan Parr, so it's a real, like, like all-star bench they got going on in this episode, and they are teaming up to ask this question. What evidence outside of the Bible do we have that God exists? So excuse me, guys, we're going to start off with the questions about God first. So, all right, I know your Bible says that God exists, but I don't believe in your Bible. So therefore, mm -hmm. Mr. Christian. Yeah, good. <laughs> where do you go from there? Yeah, really good question. I mean, so far, they're off to a great start. This is this is the right question, right? Yeah, I mean, like, hey, why should I believe the thing that you're saying is the thing I should be believing? So, right, you're not going to convince somebody who doesn't believe in Christianity and doesn't believe that the Bible is trustworthy in all respects by pointing to the Bible, right? That's not going to be compelling. So, you have to do some work to convince them that your deity, or at least some deity, exists before they can buy into the rest. This is a much better approach than like presuppositional apologetics where they assume that their claim is correct and then launch from there, right? So, so far, this is great. And I'm really hoping that they can keep this momentum up and it'll just be stellar the whole way through. That's both foreshadowing and ironic. <laughs> <laughs> and I normally talk about three arguments for God or three pieces of evidence for God. The first is that the universe had a beginning, Alan that there was a beginning to space, time, and matter. And even atheists admit this. I mean, even Stephen Hawking, who was the top physicist in the world until he died about four years ago, uh, said this, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. In other words, there was a, a starting point for space, time, and matter. Even atheists admit this, Jordan. Yep, if Stephen Hawking says it, well, by golly, it must be true. And I think we can definitely rely on Frank Turek to be accurately relaying Stephen Hawking's views. We don't need to look into it any further. Nope. If if Frank Turek said it, it's true. And if he said that an atheist said it, then it must very well even more be true. Or right. Or but you know, just as an exercise, not that Frank would ever mischaracterize something, take something out of context. Oh, Frank wouldn't do that. But just as an exercise, so we can get those reps in, let's just, you know, check out the context for this quote. Because in looking for this quote, uh, if you just like type that into Google, you do find it. It's just page after page of Christian apologists repeating this quote, but only ever that piece of the quote, which is, Definitely a red flag. If you see, like, only the like, like the died in the wool believers of whatever thing you're talking about doing the quote, never like the scientist talking about a quote or the quote itself. That's definitely a problem. Also, and the fact that the same quote is always used by everybody else, and right. only in like only that little piece, they never talk right. about the rest. Definitely red flags all over the place. Uh, so we don't have to take Frank's word for it, though, right? Let's let's go to Stephen Hawking. Let's see what Stephen Hawking has to say about his own proposal and see if it matches up with the vibe that Frank was giving. It was at a conference in the Vatican in 1981 that I first put forward the suggestion that maybe time and space together formed a surface that was finite in size but did not have any boundary or edge. Together with James Hartle from the University of California, 
By worked out what physical conditions the early universe must satisfy, if space-time had no boundary in the past. Our model became known as the no-boundary proposal. It says that when we go back towards the beginning of our universe, space and time become fuzzy and cap off, somewhat like the North Pole on the surface of the Earth. So I don't know about you, that doesn't sound a whole lot like what Frank's talking about. Right? Nope. I didn't hear him at all ever say that there was a starting point. Right. So what, what when Hawking is talking in here in this clip, which to be clear is not where the quote comes from. I'll tell you where the quote comes from in a second. He's talking about his no boundary proposal, which doesn't have like a unique point in time where the universe begins. Instead, like time kind of loses meaning as a concept and it kind of becomes time as we know it after this kind of starting region so to speak. Uh, you can look more into it if you want to learn more about the physics. But So clearly, like, what Hawking is talking about isn't just like, boom, snap, discrete moment in time, everything comes into being. So what gives? Right? Why the disconnect between these two? So I did some digging, and I found that this quote comes from The Nature of Space-Time, which is a published lecture series given by Hawking, and I think Penrose had the other half of the lectures, in 1994. So this is red flag number three, because he, Turek and others, are using a single quote from 30 years ago as their only evidence for the specific claim. You know, and, and even if it was an accurate portrayal, Cosmology has not stood still for the last 30 years, right? There's still more to be learned, but okay. So the lectures are targeted, or were, sorry, targeted at physics students who have a basic knowledge of general relativity and quantum theory, which means way more than I have. <laughs> which means way more, way more than what I have. <laughs> yeah, but what Stephen Hawking considered basic and what I consider basic, two very different things. But uh, here's some context. Here's the context of that quote. It's in the first lecture. Such singularities would be an end of time. The other situation in which singularities are predicted is in the past at the beginning at the present expansion of the universe. This led to the abandonment of attempts, mainly by the Russians, to argue that there was a previous contracting phase and a non-singular bounce into expansion. Instead, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. The prediction of singularities means that classical general relativity is not a complete theory. With the singularity in the past, the only way to deal with this problem seems to be an appeal to quantum gravity. So the thing that everyone believes that Stephen Hawking is referring to here is that there was a singularity at the past at the Big Bang, as opposed to some other classical idea that doesn't involve a singularity. Okay, so either Frank Turk just doesn't understand, which could be very well possible, uh, quantum physics. I mean, that's possible. He doesn't understand that. Uh, um, probably. <laughs> Almost definitely, actually. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm trying to be generous here. All right, so... Um, you don't need to be that generous. <laughs> but it still seems like he might be misrepresenting what... Hawkins is saying or pulling something out that kind of he already has this idea of what he wants to say and he needs a prominent atheist to say it. And so he's like, oh, here's a quote. I'll use that. And I suspect that's how most of these apologists said that they haven't read the these lectures and probably have no idea where the quote came from. It's just they here's a quote, Stephen Hawking, boom, put it in. So 
it may sound like he's still talking about a beginning, and he is kind of talking about a beginning. So you may not be aware of what a singularity is. So a singularity, as Hawking has talked about in this lecture series and elsewhere, uh, it's a prediction of general relativity. And general relativity is a classical theory. Classical means it doesn't incorporate quantum mechanics. And because we're pretty sure, by we I mean physicists, uh, quantum mechanics is the right answer. It's how things actually work. General relativity is definitely an incomplete theory. The singularity itself is basically a point of infinite density that curves Earth. It's not truly infinite, but like sufficient density that uh, the laws of physics as we know them break down. General relativity no longer works when you get to such small scales because quantum effects now dominate. So when you're on extremely large scales, quantum effects are still there, but they're much more minor so they can be ignored. You can't ignore them when you're in an infinitesimally small point. Right now, quantum okay. forces matter a lot. And general relativity, in case you don't know, is a is a theory of gravity. It's how gravity works, is what general rel- relativity is describing. So what we need to get past this singularity, this point where the physics breaks down, meaning we don't understand what's happening, we need a theory of quantum gravity, how gravity works on such small scales. We don't have that. That's not known at this time. There have been a lot of Attempts, no attempt has been successful. So in order to get to the, the Big Bang Theory as we have it, right, Take you've got the, the initial condition of the singularity of, of like a very dense point in space, all, all mat, uh, matter condensed to a single point, space, time, and matter. And then the Big Bang Theory picks up from there and moves forward. So we uh, physicists understand pretty well how things worked up until like the the fractions of a second after the moment of the big bang but they do not they don't understand at all what happened at the moment or if the moment or before the big bang are even like meaningful things whether that's a yeah whether that's even worth talking about well not so just like not worth talking about but it might well, just be like a meaningless phrase so like in hawking's right. no boundary proposal which he was just talking about to say before the big bang wouldn't really make much sense because time isn't time as we know it before the Big Bang, if that makes sense. You might think, though, that we're just a bunch of atheists trying desperately to avoid conclusions we don't like, and that's why we're bringing in all this crazy stuff. So to dispel that notion, uh, here's a quote from Aaron Wall. Aaron Wall is a devout conservative Christian, and he actually agrees with Frank to the extent that he believes that the universe had a beginning, and he thinks that God is the source of that beginning. But he thinks the universe comes to a definitive beginning. But here's what he has to say. Even if we can say that there appears to have been a beginning based on an extrapolation of the Big Bang model to early times, there are also reasons why we can't be completely sure, so long as we don't completely understand quantum space-time. Certainly the universe as we know it began, but we cannot completely eliminate the possibility of a pre-Big Bang stage. Now that is about as sympathetic a source as you could hope to get. And even Wall concedes that this isn't certain. He thinks you can extrapolate the predictions of of general relativity back there. And even though the theory breaks down, he thinks it still is like suggestive of a beginning. But even he concedes, nobody knows. And we won't know until we have a theory of quantum gravity. Okay. So when, is it more of just like, it's easier for us to talk about a beginning? Like we don't, we, we don't really know what happened back there. We don't have the tools to even look or even talk about what happened back there. So we're just going to say at the singularity, that is the beginning of what we currently know as space and time and matter. 
Like, yeah. So when cosmologists say that the universe had a beginning, what they mean is our universe, the one the the one we are living in, the one that we experience right now. Now, many of them believe that that is also everything. That the universe is also the entire cosmos. It's usually the universe means like everything, which is kind of confusing. Uh, but because <laughs> like they they called this the universe, and then later science was like, well, maybe that's not it. So they kind of, but the name had already been taken, you know. So they'll often right. use the word cosmos to mean like everything, everything, the universe, and also anything beyond it, if there is a beyond it. So many cosmologists think that this universe is the cosmos. That's all there is, and that there was a beginning right at the Big Bang. Many believe there's more to it than that. Many believe that there's like the idea of before that time is meaningless and has there's like it's nonsense. Nobody can say with certainty which is correct. So uh, if you hear a cosmologist say space space time came into existence at the Big Bang, what they mean is our instantiation of space time. Okay. Wow. So. How far are we into this video? We are one minute into this video with Frank Turek. <laughs> Here's the problem with, with Turek. He's like gish gallop to the extreme. He, he, he talks so quickly and he just throws out a bunch of nonsense. And he, he it takes seconds for him to put it out there. And it takes 10 minutes to unpack. He is like the a walking example of the bullshit asymmetry well, it principle. Takes, it takes 10 minutes for us to do a synopsis of the unpacking, but it took a right. lot more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. if we're, like, we'd have to actually get physicists on to like really unpack yeah, everything he yeah. has to say, but okay. We've, we've established this. Let's move past minute one now. <laughs> okay. The only thing that's controversial, Alan, is what caused the beginning, right? And so it seems to me that if space, time, and matter had a beginning then whatever created space-time and matter can't be made of space-time and matter. In other words, the cause must transcend space-time and matter. Okay, so this is a very common talking point uh, that's made in a smarter-sounding way by William Lane Craig like all the time. Space-time and matter came into existence at the Big Bang, then the cause of it has to be spaceless, timeless, and material, has to transcend, has to be blah, 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 all these other traits, right? But this is all based on the assumption of a thing that we don't necessarily understand, though, right? Yeah. We we just talked about this, that we nobody knows that the singularity was the start of everything. The singularity is telling you that your understanding of physics is wrong. That's what it's telling you. There's more to it than you understand. And so, like, using using these models that are like, hey, I don't work here. Like this this region, I'm not good at. And it's like, yeah, but that's where we need you. So, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, also that, too, when, yeah, whenever Frank says, it seems to me, like that's usually a red flag for me to go, wait a second, wait. But yeah, you're just some dude. Like what What do you know about? I don't what, care what it seems like to yeah. you. What is the actual, yeah. <laughs> you know? So aside from that though, like, he he makes this this idea that like lacking space, lacking time, lacking matter means that it must be this deity, right? Like there's no other co- way to get about it. If you don't have space, time, and matter, then you know you have to infer some kind of supernatural something. But that's just not the case. Cosmologists have come up with all kinds of ways, given quantum mechanics, that one could go from no space, no time, no matter to the world we have today. This is not uncommon in the field of cosmology. So here's some examples. Uh, Hawking's uh, no-boundary proposal, which we talked about earlier, that would be one of them, Uh, where there's no, like, discrete moment uh, that, you know, it banged into existence. Uh, Vilenkin's of the Borde-Guth-Vilenkin theorem, 
William Lane Craig's favorite theorem, probably the only one he knows in physics. Uh, Lincoln's he has a t- the tunneling model, and basically the universe is created through quantum tunneling from, this is a quote from him, literally nothing. And it's kind of like how particles can tunnel through a barrier they can't travel through. Like you can have a wall next to an electron. The electron doesn't have the energy to get over the wall, but it can just teleport through the wall, basically. Okay. Works kind of like that. Uh, and the universe could possibly do that, according to Blinken. You've got the Carol Chen model, where baby universes spawn from a background vacuum. So there's a vacuum of no space, no time, no nothing. And baby universes spawn and inflate mm-hmm. in local regions. Yeah. Uh, but the background itself is eternal, but it's also timeless, spaceless, etc. Now, uh, Blinken also points out that you don't necessarily need to have a cause at all. Frank's entire premise here is that there has to be a cause and the cause has to be, but it's not clear that there even is a cause. And this wouldn't be unique in physics. Radioactive decay may not have a cause as we understand it. So like an atom is sitting there, an unstable atom, and one moment it's there and the next moment it disintegrates. What caused it? Well, we don't know. We don't have a a good grasp of like what is really happening with quantum mechanics but the answer could be nothing at all caused it it just had a probability to do it and it just happened did it yeah Yeah. so some models of quantum mechanics some interpretations of quantum mechanics don't have a cause for that it just happened and so if those interpretations of quantum mechanics are correct then you don't necessarily need a cause in the way that we would think of it so but it, it would seem to me that a cause has a causer right <laughs> yeah well Adams disagree, I guess. So, well, you might ask, though, like, okay, so cosmologists have these models, but which one's right? And, and the answer is, I don't know. We Nobody don't knows. Know. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, all of these models have problems. That's why they're not, like, accepted fact, right? They're just ideas yeah. that are mostly consistent with the laws of physics as we know them, and then they make some, like, go further than what we know to, to like, okay, well, if the laws of physics are like this, maybe this works, you know? And so they make predictions, and but nobody's been able to like figure out which of these, if any of them, are correct. Uh, Sean Carroll frequently says, "You know, I made this model. I'm pretty sure it's not right, but it's an idea, and we should, you know, <laughs> it's the best one I could come up with. So we should figure it out." You know. Yeah. So the point is, wow. though, Turek doesn't know either, but he's starting with an incorrect starting point. He's starting assuming there has to be a cause, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. He's assuming that spaceless, timeless, and material means something more than it does, like it's some insurmountable barrier, and that's just not the case. Well, it's, he's also playing on emotions too, right? So if we remember the context of this, this conversation, Alan asked, if I'm a Christian and I'm trying to present the gospel to somebody, and they go, well, why should I believe your Bible in the first place? These are supposed to be talking points that Christians can just use. And uh, no offense, but 99% of the people don't have the qualifications. It's probably more than that, actually. 99.9% of people don't have the qualifications to talk about any of this stuff. So just I, to give somebody a talking point that says spaceless, timeless, and material, like, oh, that makes sense. Right, exactly. Like I, like I said on the last uh, episode, I have a minor in physics in my undergrad. That means I took physics up to modern physics, which means I have a, a like superficial understanding of special relativity, of t- a less understanding of general relativity, and like enough quantum mechanics to be to run a nuclear reactor, and that's <laughs> it, right? Like yeah. 
I don't know almost anything about physics. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like that's with some level of formal training that the vast majority of people do not have, right? So, yeah. yeah. For some reason, that made me think of Will Smith shooting that little girl in the cutout, like cardboard cutout in Men in Black because she's holding a quantum like mechanics or theory <laughs> yeah. book or something. It's like, <laughs> That's too advanced for me. She's not smart. Like, you know, it's got to be an alien. So if you understand this stuff, you're an alien. So. There you go. So the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create. You might say, well, why personal? Because to go from a state of nothingness to a state of creation, someone had to make a choice and only persons can make choices. You know, mm, And as evidence for this- choices. <laughs> it's evidence for this this assertion. He gives nothing. He just says it. Like it should be obvious. I, I don't know. It's it's far from clear to me that there had to be any choice involved at all. Like even if there was a cause, right? Why would that involve a choice? Yeah. But, I mean, so the other thing with with Frank Turk, I just want to point this out too. This all starts with an assumption, and then builds off of that. And a lot of times, if you just challenge that initial assumption, the rest of it is... Well, and it's never supported or, like, examined yeah, no, in any sure. way. Yeah. So, like, everybody's got assumptions, but you should be able to, like, justify why you have them. He, he never does that. Um, right. he, he just says something that's, like, kind of superficially sounds good and then just runs with it, you know? But but, but even you said, for example, like, in the, the atom, you know, decaying, like, there's no choice being made there. It just, yeah, it it just happens. It just happened. Right. Nobody made a yeah. choice. And just like that, if some of these models are correct, then you can go from nothing in the sense of no space, no time, no matter, no no nothing, and you can still get a universe. So this is an example of Turek having the answer he wants, and he starts with like less controversial claims or claims that sound more plausible so people can like kind of start nodding along, oh, and then he just yeah. like, yeah, just then he just drives right off the cliff, hoping nobody notices. <laughs> so I always ask people this question, Alan. I say, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who do you think of? Okay. Wow. I, I mean, got, yeah. First of all, poison the well a little bit there because he said, who do you think of? Um, and you describe the person you want them to think of. Like, right. He didn't sit down and like crack open a book on cosmology and decide, wow, it must be spaceless, timeless. I mean, man, I wonder what that sounds like. It's just right on the tip. Like, no, he is like, <laughs> these are the, 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 the traits that if I describe someone will say it's God. And so I'm going to work yeah. into those. That's exactly how this happens. Yeah. And again, he provides no evidence for this whatsoever. So Hitchens principle, that which Hitchens razor, that which is asserted yeah. no evidence can be rejected with no evidence. And this is all based off of intuitions too. Like, right. If you were to ask that question in India, uh, I bet you'd get a different answer. Well, I guess Probably. it depends on what part of India you're from. Um, and if you asked it yeah. in, if you asked this question in a like cosmology conference, I bet you get a very different answer. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'd probably get more questions than answers. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll say, "Well, how do you know it's the Christian God?" And my answer is, "We don't yet. We haven't done enough research yet. I mean, at this point." The creator of the universe could be Allah. In other words, it is the Christian God, but you don't know it just from what we call the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument is the argument from the beginning of the universe. Uh, you, you don't know. I mean, we do know, but you don't know. So. Well, to be fair, though, like Frank Turek just said something that was honest, 
that I agree with. That's like a gold star moment for this guy. Like he said, he acknowledged that this argument doesn't get you to the Christian God. Which it doesn't. Which it doesn't. At best, it gets you to some kind of creator. Now, I think this is a point that's often like it's missed or omitted by apologists a lot of the times, but it's also like exaggerated by atheists, I think, sometimes. So like Turek said, this just gets you to a generic cause. It doesn't get you to your specific religion. You'd have to do more work to get there, right? But atheists will often point to that and say, oh, well, therefore the cosmological argument is useless because it doesn't get you to your God. Well, it's not useless. It, it did do I mean, something if it, it works. If, if it works and it's sound and valid, then it definitely gets you to a deity of some sort, right? Well, it gets you to a cause, which you may, if you accept that well, it would yeah. get you to a deity well, I mean, if you it, accept it's like, Further attacking. I'm saying if you all, if you if all the premises that he laid out end up being sound and valid, yeah. If you went with like the timeless but personal and all this, yeah, then you'd get to a deity, and that's like that's not nothing. Even if it just got you to a cause, that's still not nothing. You know, if you started with like you're an atheist who doesn't think there's a cause of the universe at all, and it got you to a cause, and one of those possible causes is God, well, that was some some ground gained. And so, if an argument moves you closer to if, if you make an argument and that moves the other person closer to your goal, then that argument had value, even if it doesn't get you all the way. Right. It's Sometimes it seems like atheists or, or people want uh, a, a two-point syllogism that defines the most complex thing that we've get, ever even considered. Like, yeah, yeah. Boom. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, unfortunately, life's unlikely to acquiesce to that. Yeah. So you have building blocks, right? Yeah. So. Cumulative case. The best kind of case. How do we discover if this is Allah or the Christian God? What we need to do is see the evidence for Jesus's resurrection. And if we look at that evidence, I think we'll realize that Jesus rose from the dead, which means that the same being that created space, matter, and time is the same being in whose human nature walked out of the tomb 1,986 years ago. There's a a lot in that, but okay. Well, I mean, like... I can see why he might say that. I don't think it necessarily like definitively proves it's the same being. So there could be conceptions of a deity, like a, a creator deity at the beginning of the universe that don't have anything to do with Jesus resurrection. Like maybe he like spawned the universe and then it's like uh, you lesser deities can handle the, the details. I'm going on to the yeah. next thing, you know, like th- there's all kinds of conceptions that right. are different than the Christian idea. But I mean, once you accept that there is a supernatural and there's deities, like, first of all, like we said before, the prior of miracles goes way up. Like, the, the prior probability, the likelihood that miracles are true or real, that's way up. And I, like, I guess if Jesus was like, hey, I'm going to die, but don't worry, Yahweh's going to bring me back. And then he dies and gets brought back. I mean, that's that's decent, right? That's good. It's not necessarily, like, definitive, but I think it's still pretty good. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there, too. I mean... That's but huge. you still have to do that, right? You still have to like. Yeah, you still. Yeah. Like he said, you can look back in history and like see that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, no, like. No, you can't. No, you can't. Like the the evidence is insufficient for that. You'd have to prove God exists first, and then you can see if this miracle, this specific miracle, is real and who it should be attributed to. But you have to do the God thing first, which is the very thing that you're trying to to do, right? So, like, yeah, we have it both ways. Yeah, we've covered uh, the resurrection on this channel a couple of times, and I think we have a fairly recent video 
So uh, yeah, on it. We'll drop that in the description. We'll also put I did a debate on miracles uh, yeah. that covered this. We'll put both of those in the description. The second and third arguments. The second argument is the argument from the design of the universe that if the universe were slightly different by any one of a number of factors, virtually imperceptibly, Alan, this is called the fine tuning of the universe, there would be no universe or there would be no universe that could support life. So the universe appears to be fine tuned for life to exist and even for chemistry to work. So, and then the third so argument do you mean, is the argument When you argument say fine tuning, do you mean like if the sun is like the distance from the sun to the earth, like if it was further away or like like it has to it's perfect now and if something was out of alignment that we wouldn't that's that part of it but even from the beginning let me let me just give you one fact on this because this is uh this is uh hard to believe but hawking the atheist put it this way he said that if the expansion rate of the universe were different by one part in a thousand million million a second after the big bang the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. Hawking said it. Uh, must be real. Uh, and, I, said it. and as we've seen, Frank definitely never gets Hawking's context wrong at all, right? Yeah, uh, he, also never, who, yeah. he also never says where these quotes are from. Kind of annoying. Yeah, because then you can't track them down. Um, don't worry. Because, well, he doesn't expect people to track them down, though. So, uh. Well, joke's on you, Frank, because I tracked it down. It comes from A Brief History of Time, one of Hawking's more famous books. The quote itself is from one page 126. So he does quote accurately. And I should say the previous quote, like word for word, that is what Hawking says, and likewise here. However, a couple pages later, on page 133, Hawking continues. He says, moreover, the rate of expansion of the universe would automatically become very close to the critical rate determined by the energy density of the universe. This could then explain why the rate of expansion is still cl so close to the critical rate without having to assume the initial rate of expansion of the universe was very carefully chosen. Ah, so very carefully, or in other words, fine-tuned. Fine right. Okay. He, Hawking was like, hey... If it was different by any amount, it wouldn't work. And then five pages later is like, and so, as I just discussed, this is why that's not a problem because physics reasons, it would like, it would, it would basically match. fix like, itself. Yeah, right. yeah. This is why that you see that. So this is kind of like Frank took the abstract of a paper where they like asked the question they're about to answer and then just ignored the paper where they answer the question. You know, <laughs> And that's just one of about a dozen different things that you can look at and say, if any one of those were imperceptibly different, we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. Okay. A dozen different things. What are those dozen things? Don't know. It doesn't matter. Just don't ask questions. Keep going. <laughs> And Alan's like, hmm, okay. Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm. He's like. <laughs> yeah. So it, Frank doesn't go into what these are. It, so, but kind of generally though, he's saying if any one of these dozen things are different, we wouldn't be here. There's some assumptions packed into that that he doesn't go into. Like, first of all, he's assuming that these things, these con I, I'm going to assume he's talking about constants. Like these constants, he's assuming those constants can vary, but we don't know what makes the constants be what they are. So there's no way we can know that they can vary at all. I mean, maybe they could. There's no reason to suppose they can't vary, but there's no reason to suppose they can. You know, uh, he's assuming that they, if they can vary, they vary independently, right? So yeah. if you've got a dozen variables and if they all are like fine-tuned or whatever, independently, that might be unlikely. But if they're all kind of 
emergent properties of a more fundamental variable, that may not be as surprising. And, and also, he's assuming that if things varied at all, then there would be no life at all. But that's not what we're talking about, right? We're, it's, so it's true that like if things were different, life as we know it wouldn't be here. If things were different, things were di- would be different. Right. Like, what about life as not as we know it? What about a like, different life? Who knows what conditions life could arise in? Like, Sean Carroll, in his debate with William Lane Craig, said, I will concede that the universe is fine-tuned for life when someone can tell me what the conditions that permit life are. We don't know yet, right? We like yeah. who knows if what kind of universe is what what are the range of universes that could be life permitting. And so it's premature to say the least to say that these this set that we have is the only possible set. We have one set, one sample, sample size. size of one. So at this point in the video, uh, Frank talks about the moral argument for God. He spends like less than a minute on it. So we're not going to get into it. We're going to stick on the cosmology. We have done a previous episode on the moral argument. So go check that in the description. But the next thing he gets into, though, are skeptic responses. How would a skeptic respond to these claims? What You've presented a great argument, but what what should we as Christians be ready for if we're talking to somebody so that we're not caught off guard? What What might they say in response to what you said? Probably the biggest response to what I just said regarding the cosmological argument and the design argument, the fine tuning, is they will say there's a multiverse out there. Uh, multiverse meaning we're not the only universe, that there are, there are trillions of other universes out there, and ours just happens to be the one that looks designed, even though it really isn't. It's just the luck of the draw, so to speak. So... Hmm. I think that's a little disingenuous when he says it's just the luck of the draw that we got the one that looks designed because it, it doesn't really give the weight of the, the multiverse, the weight it deserves as an explanation for this. So what he's appealing to the multiverse, in case you're not aware, there are s- some cosmological models that if they're correct, our universe, the thing that we can see, observe and interact with is not the only universe. There are other regions of the cosmos that are other universes, perhaps with different laws of physics. And so the idea is that if there are trillions or many, many, many multiverses with different laws of physics, then the ones that are life-permitting, that's where you'll find life, right? You'll find life in the ones that, are hot, are, that life can live in, and you won't find life in the other ones. And so if your life... If you're like something alive looking around, you're going to find yourself in a life-permitting universe. <laughs> what are the chances? <laughs> One. I, I'm percent. alive. <laughs> this thing yeah. permits life. The, like, yeah. the conditional probability, given that you are like asking the question that you're in a life-permitting universe, is one. 100%. You will always find yourself in a life-permitting universe. So this is the – it's called the anthropic principle, basically. You have to take into, a, into a, uh, account the – information you have that you exist, that life exists. Well, given that, you're going to find yourself in a life-permitting universe. So it's not that we just, the luck of the draw, it's that, you know, the it's kind of like the puddle analogy. The puddle, it says, Scott Adams, I think, came up with it. It's like there's a puddle, and he, like, wakes up one day and remarks, and like, how amazing it is that the edges of the dirt perfectly fit my shape you know it must be perfectly designed yeah. no it's just you know life fits to where uh, the niche it was given now keep in mind alan that nobody thought of the multiverse was a possibility 
before the fine-tuning argument was discovered about 50 or 60 years ago. This is kind of a desperate atheistic attempt to avoid the obvious. Dude, Frank, you're not that important, man. Like, outside of some losers like us who for some reason do this as a hobby, nobody gives a shit what you say (laughs) or any Christian grifters say. Like, no cosmologist cares at all about what you're saying. (laughs) And secondly, that's just straight up a lie. Yeah, that's also just a lie, right? So you can, like, literally go to Wikipedia and the, the multiverse entry of Wikipedia, and you can see that this is a lie. This is, like baby's first effort at <laughs> investigating a claim and that's enough to debunk it like so uh boltzmann who was a physicist in uh the 19th century he hypothesized that our universe was a fluctuation a thermal fluctuation so usually things are in thermal equilibrium but you're going to get some random variation and our universe is one such random variation he's if you've ever heard of boltzmann brains that's where it comes from and so that would if there's if thermal fluctuations can lead to a universe well then you would imagine there could be multiple universes right um mm-hmm. so that's kind of a multiverse idea uh debatably the father of the big bang lamatra expressed ideas that sound kind of multiversey in the 30s the multiverse implied by the no boundary proposal and inflationary cosmology may seem like a modern idea. But Georges Lemaitre, the father of the Big Bang, may have hinted at the basic concept as early as the 1930s in this quote. Clearly, the initial quantum could not conceal in itself the whole course of evolution. The story of the world need not have been written down in the first quantum, like the song on a disc of a phonograph. Instead, from the same beginning, widely different universes could have evolved. Hmm. And uh, Lamatra wasn't the only one discussing these kind of ideas at that time. The idea of a multiverse of some sort had penetrated society to such an extent that Winston Churchill, in his autobiography, My Early Life, which was written in the 30s, he said, quote, certainly nothing could be more repulsive both to our minds and feelings than the spectacles the spectacle of thousands of millions of universes, for that is what they say it comes to now, all knocking about together forever without any rational or good purpose behind them. He's talking about the multiverse, and this is a book from 1930, <clears throat> well before 50 to 60 years ago. So Frank's idea is just false, right on his face, right? Also, I need to point this out too. Our technology has advanced so much since then that we've gained more knowledge about the initial conditions and being able to look into the heavens to understand some of the stuff that they didn't even have access to. So they were coming up with these theories without half of the information that our current cosmologists have. At that time, it wasn't even known that there were more than one galaxy. Right. I mean, it's crazy that they were coming up with this stuff. Um, right. But to the point that, oh, well, it may look like it. They, these arguments started popping up in response to the fine-tuning argument, but they just... they. They weren't even a thing then. So right. that's, yeah. So, yeah, this is not some like atheist attempt to avoid the cosmological argument or the fine tuning argument from Christians. Now, it is true, though, that like the modern conception of a multiverse kind of gained traction about 50 to 60 years ago. That much is true. And it came from several different ways, but here's one of the avenues to get to a multiverse. Uh, you can get it through eternal cosmic ex- expansion. So, 
in or inflation, sorry, eternal cosmic inflation. So briefly, in the late 70s, 79, Alan Guth proposed a period of hyperinflation in the very early universe. And he argued that was possible because of gravity's ability to be repulsive rather than attractive in certain circumstances. And he proposed it as a solution for the lack of things like magnetic monopoles. So a magnetic monopole is a magnet with only one pole, monopole, right? And theories at the time predicted there should be monopoles everywhere, and there aren't any. We haven't seen a single one. And so the question was, why? How, where, where do they all go? And his idea was if the, there was a, p- a period of rapid inflation, then the monopoles, which would have existed densely to begin with, got diluted away. And so they're out there. They're just like very, very thinly scattered. So that's why we haven't you know, encountered one. And it just so happened uh, that this idea also solved other problems. So shortly after he proposed this, other physicists were like, hey, this would also solve the horizon problem, which is the observation that the universe is largely homogenous, meaning like the same in every direction, uh, even though different regions are too far away to have affected each other because the light from one region couldn't have gotten to another region in the history of the universe. But they they appear to be in balance with each other, and how would that happen if they never you know, interacted, right? Or the flatness problem. The universe is very nearly flat. And flat in this term means like if you had two parallel lines in a flat universe, they'd stay parallel forever, just like you'd expect. Not not flat in the flat Earth sense. Right. It's it's three-dimensionally flat. Don't break your brain about it. Don't worry <laughs> about it. It's just, it can be flat, it can be open, or it can be closed. There's three options. Flat is kind of like balance right between an R seems flat, Y right. flat. So inflation could solve all those problems. And it's always a great sign in science when you come up with an idea for one thing, but it also solves other unrelated problems. That's a clue that you might be on the right track. You didn't intend to solve those problems. That wasn't the point. But you, you, if you stumbled on the right answer, you often find that in science. And so, well, when it comes to inflation, though, what's actually happening, I guess I should have said this before. I've just been saying inflation, <laughs> assuming people like, you know, have read. I, I just thought it was like a, a 1980s, you know, economic model for. <laughs> yeah. OK, so, <laughs> my bad. Uh, so <laughs> in inflation, space is expanding very rapidly, like. It, like faster than light. So things can't move through space faster than light, but space can do whatever it wants. And in inflation, space itself, the area between like matter and galaxies and stuff is expanding at an exponential rate, extremely fast, okay? Well, it turns out, if you have that going on, it's actually really hard to get it to stop. So in, in most models of inflation, you've got this, uh, all this space is rapidly expanding, right? and it's expanding much faster than the speed of light, and some small regions stop inflating, right? They, they become stable, so it's kind of like bubbles, right? So they're, they're still expanding, but not like at the inflationary rate, the super fast rate. Well, so you got this bubble that forms. Well, the area around that bubble is still expanding much faster, exponentially faster. Way too fast for those bubbles to ever touch each other. And so the region in between these bubbles is constantly getting bigger, and then more bubbles are popping up, but you know, there's never enough bubbles to stop the inflation, if that makes sense. Gotcha. And so I mean a little bit of sense. Yeah. Like basically I'm grasping it. Once inflation starts, it's most of the time in most conceptions of inflation, it just goes on forever. Even if it had a definitive starting point, it's eternal into the future. Mm-hmm. And again, that and that there, there you go. You have a multiverse. 
like you have multiple universes spawning out of this. We're in a bubble. Thing. There's a bubble over there. Exactly. But that's a multiverse. Gonna, still far apart. We're not going to yeah. see each other. This is not like some crazy atheist idea. We had an interview with Jeff Swearank. The description for the, that will also be in the in the description. But fair warning, my audio like I recorded through a potato. I'm so very sorry for it, but <laughs> it was a great interview anyway. He's a physicist who works for Reasons to Believe and he didn't have any problem with accepting that kind of a multiverse and other kinds possibly. It didn't pose a problem for him and his Christianity. So, uh, but you know what? Frank Turek loves Stephen Hawking so much. So let's hear what Stephen Hawking has to say about it. In our previous film, Alan Guth, the father of inflationary theory, claimed that inflation is generically eternal. In other words, almost all models of inflation lead to a multiverse. The multiverse arises in inflation from the same quantum mechanical effect that leads to the irregularities in the early universe seen in the microwave background. This is because if one traces the universe's history backwards in time, deep into the face of inflation, one can encounter a regime of eternal inflation. In eternal inflation, the quantum fluctuations in the energy density of the matter are large. It is usually thought that this can keep inflation going forever in some regions of the universe. Our observable universe would then become a local pocket universe, a region in which inflation has ended. Globally, the universe would have a highly complicated structure and would consist of infinitely many such pocket universes separated from each other by inflating regions. The local laws of physics and chemistry can differ from one pocket universe to another, which together form a multiverse. So there you go. Multiverse, straight from Stephen Hawking's mouth. So therefore, Frank Turek should believe it. But many atheists are trying to avoid that by claiming there are other universes out there, other universes they can't detect. It's a total faith position. Well, you know how those scientists are, constantly dreaming up ideas and then never bothering to test it. You know, that's what scientists do. Right? Right? That's, that's, not, that's not what happens, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, but, not at all, actually. Uh, this is this is ridiculous. This is just more D-tier apologetics. But first of all, using faith as a derogatory term when, like, his yeah, entire that, freaking life is based on that. Okay. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Yeah, yeah. golly. But okay, whatever. This isn't exclusive to Frank Turek. Lots of people have leveled this charge. And to be fair... Some of those people are actual experts who know what the hell they're talking about. So, uh, it and to be fair, to be fair, sometimes atheists do use these arguments without knowing what the hell they're talking about, it too. Yeah, just because an atheist says this and happens to be right doesn't mean they actually know what they're talking about, right? And I definitely don't know what I'm talking about. That's why I'm listening to scientists. So, let's hear what a scientist has to say about it. Critics of the multiverse have said that as other bubble universes are not observable, the multiverse is not science. Well, I think that's rubbish. Um, physics always involves concepts and uh, ingredients which are not directly observable. An example is the Higgs boson. We don't observe it directly. We observe its decay products. All theories in physics have ingredients and concepts which don't directly, are not directly observable, but play a role in deriving predictions for features which are observable. 
similarly so for the multiverse. Couldn't have said it better myself. Rubbish. Right. It's rubbish. It's nonsense. Right. So if you have a model and it makes accurate predictions and it's useful for advancing our understanding of how things works, then it's not a problem if you can't detect every single part of the model, right? If theory A says, hey, there will be multiverses and you can't detect those directly. But also if theory A is right, then you'll have curvature of the universe X and some relationship between these you know, constants A, B, and C, and all of that's right. Well, then you can have decent confidence that your theory is right. You know, all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. <laughs> so, whatever it it's the multiverse is not established. Its existence, depending on the kind of multiverse you're talking about, is not controversial among cosmologists. But its its existence is not necessarily established. But that doesn't mean it's not scientific. It's a fruitful area of scientific inquiry. Jane. And even if these other universes did exist, Alan, they still don't get rid of the need for a creator because you could simply ask the question, well, why did, where did these other universes come from? And, and they appear to be fine-tuned as well. So, I mean, let's move some goalposts real quick. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I just, so why go into all this argument against the multiverse if you're just going to say, well, even if we did have a multiverse, it's still God did it. So, like... Right. I think I think it's so that he can undercut the credibility of people yeah. who are arguing against him because he's painting the idea that, oh, these atheist ivory tower physicists are just desperately trying to avoid the obvious. Like, that's nonsense, obviously. But yeah, I, I think that's the point. Uh, so, yeah, like we, we mentioned this before, it depends on your flavor of multiverse. Some cosmological models are eternal. Some are not. It, nobody knows which ones are right. And but some do have a beginning fine okay yeah that's fine like any just so kind of like zooming out a bit i don't think that getting you to a beginning actually gets you anywhere in terms of like it, it's not necessarily zero but i don't think it's very much because if you say okay there had to be a cause right well i think any justification you can give for that cause being a god you could equally just give it to energy or some quantum field or something like some kind of physics like if something needs to be pre-existent then why not just go with like stuff we already know exists right but but that's why frank always adds the personal thing in there right. which he kind of slips in and doesn't give any justification for really why it has to be personal and the reasons that he does give when he's doing his other stuff not in the short thing but they don't hold up right. at all so yeah Exactly. The second part of these other multiverses, he said, and these all the other multiverses, and they appear fine-tuned as well, that, no, right. dude, that just undermines, like, we already talked about, you already talked yeah. about this. Like, the whole reason you say we came up with the multiverse was to solve the fine-tuning problem, like, and now you're and, saying and, it doesn't do that, and, like. Well, now you're talking about, like, they actually exist, and we know what their properties are, too, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can't measure them, but I, like in a dream, was just. <laughs> when that, uh, yeah. Okay. Sick. Yeah, so that's basically the end of Frank Turret's argumentation, such as it is. He talks about the difference between atheist and agnostic, and we agree with that. And then he talks about evolution, but we don't need to get into that kind of stuff. You can go look at Jackson Wheat Channel or Creation Mess or something if you want to hear about evolution. Yeah, it's crazy how much stuff he'll slip into it. Uh, conversation about cosmology so within that conversation about cosmology we got morality 
We got definition of atheism. We got evolution. We got abiogenesis. Like there's a whole bunch of throwing it out there a mile a minute. You know, (laughs) if if he never if he never stops to take a breath, then you can't possibly say anything. Yeah. So you made it to the end of the episode. That means you get a fallacy. And we are doing a fallacy again. Kind of. Not really a fallacy. It's, it, it's, we're talking about fallacies. Today's fallacy of the day is fallacy bingo. And this is not so much a fallacy as it is a way to engage with people. So when you're playing fallacy bingo, the way that works is if someone says something and you think it's fallacious and you just say, oh, that's uh, this fallacy, you know. That's the fallacy fallacy or that's, you know, whatever. Pick a fallacy, it's that, and then, you know, checkmate, you leave. That doesn't help very much. It's not very useful to just, like, chuck the name of a fallacy like a grenade and then run away, you know? Uh, It's better to give an explanation of some sort, like, hey, it sounds like you're saying this. That doesn't work for these reasons. It's known as this kind of fallacy. Right. And maybe they could give an explanation as like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't make that clear. Here's what I meant. Right. It could be that they just didn't speak well or type well or whatever, and maybe it's actually not fallacious. Or or maybe they go, oh my gosh, you're right. I didn't realize I was being a phallic. I mean, fallacious. Yeah. I didn't realize that I was throwing <laughs> phalluses everywhere. I'll stop that. <laughs> hopefully. Never happen on the internet ever. Uh, but, you know, you are hopefully teaching them something. Like now they know what the fallacy is so they can actually avoid it. Potentially right. in the future, uh, you are being less of a dick, and that's always great. Uh, also, it forces you to kind of work through their argument, understand it better, right? And you know, maybe you're wrong. Maybe they're not being fallacious, and you were incorrect. Or maybe you actually don't understand the fallacy. Maybe you're wrong about the, what the fallacy is. But if you like he- show your work, then this is the internet. If you're wrong, someone will tell you. Other people can tell you that the fallacy you just right. messed up. Yeah. This this is all predicated on the fact that you actually want to have a conversation with somebody. You actually want them to know something or you actually want to learn something yourself. If you literally just want to be a jackass and just tell somebody they're wrong and ditch out, go for it. But you're well, playing fallacy bingo. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, I'd say go do something better with your life. But then again, like I argue with people on the internet all the time. So I yeah. can't exactly <laughs> glass house here. <laughs> but I try to do it as politely at least at first anyway so that's the fallacy uh so this video was recorded a week ago but if you joined our patreon it was we're recording right now we are recording now but like when the people are watching this they it was a week ago time you know week ish ago but if you joined our Patreon, you could watch it the instant it got finished and posted. You can watch it early if you'd like. The link will be in the description. It would really help out this channel. But if you don't want to do that, totally get it. Like, comment, subscribe, do all the to YouTube stuff, feed the algorithm. Those help tremendously too. Uh, so do all that stuff so you'll know when the next video comes up. Until then, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out. What is the question? I don't know. We came into this completely unprepared.